0: Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds.
1: Hello there. Haven't the last two weeks been wonderful? It is such a joy to walk through my gardens in the early morning, my cup of tea in one hand and my cell phone in the other taking as many photos as possible of all of my native flowers in full bloom. Equally wonderful are all of the pollinators buzzing around. Simply incredible. After last summer's drought, I was truly concerned the pollinators would not bounce back. But I needn't have worried. They are back in full force. I have a funny story to tell. I searched throughout my entire front yard looking for my bumblebees the other morning. There wasn't a single bee anywhere. However, I rounded the corner into the hot sun and looked across my backyard where I have a huge field of goldenrod, and lo and behold, there had to be at least 100 bumblebees buzzing back and forth in a frenzy from bloom to bloom. I guess that shows you how much bumblebees like goldenrod. I think we have a great show for you today. Today we'll be speaking with Marta McDowell, author of the book Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life. The Plants in Places that Inspired the Iconic Poet, published by Timber Press. Her book draws fascinating parallels between Emily Dickinson's gardening, her poetry, and her spiritual life. Okay, and now I'd like to introduce Marta McDowell to the show. Marta, thank you so much for joining us
2: today. Thank you, Catherine. Glad to be here.
1: Now, I have to say, you have written a wonderful book, I just finished reading your book on Emily Dickinson and all about her gardens. Could you tell our listeners maybe what made you decide to write about Emily Dickinson?
2: Well, Emily Dickinson was really my very first topic as a garden writer. It was entirely accidental. I was in a corporate career. I was on a business trip. And I was driving across Massachusetts, visiting insurance agencies and I had a spare afternoon. So I, you know, I had been an American studies major in college and kind of a general liberal arts major. And so of course I always had studied Emily Dickinson, but I thought, oh yeah, this will be interesting. So I drove up to the museum, it's in Amherst and it was really kind of a country town even more so then, because that's about probably three decades ago. And I came to the house and the curator there showed me around. And I had a sort of epiphany, Catherine, where I discovered that Emily Dickinson and I had something in common. I had always loved to garden. And I found out that she did as well. I will say it really changed my life. I went in the whole different direction and started to just look into what were the details of that what did she grow why did she grow them how did it impact what she wrote and from there i've gone on to look at other authors and their gardens and so you know it really made a difference
1: so now you're a gardener yourself and also a a garden designer correct
2: Yes, I do a lot of my own gardening and a little bit still for other people. I find now that I do most of my gardening either at the keyboard or in the classroom in terms of contacting other people. And by the time I layer on my own garden, which always seems very demanding, I don't have a lot of time left over.
1: So what was that like for you, being taken on the tour of the old homestead in Amherst and going out to the back of the yard and seeing the garden? That must have been something.
2: It was. And I will say it started out in the house itself. At the time, the curator's name was Cindy Dickinson. Her name tag said no relation. And she's the one who first showed me examples of the herbarium pages that Emily Dickinson had put together. These are, it's really a a sort of album of pressed plants that she had collected. So both wild plants native to the area and garden plants. And she told me about Dickinson's flower interest and gardening interest. And then of course the garden itself was just topped it all. (laughs) I will say, it's not in and of itself a really stunning garden. It's a very normal garden. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have a a bed with flowers and and maybe another bed with vegetables and a bed with peonies and some big lilac bushes. It's that kind of garden. It's a sort of old-fashioned garden. It's not a great design. It's just a place where they grew things.
1: Right. Now, many people call Emily Dickinson a a mystic or contemplative. So they describe her garden as sort of a meandering type of design, meant for slow walking while in deep thought. Is that the sense you got when you were
2: there? I think that Emily Dickinson spent a lot of time in her garden. A neighbor remembered her kneeling on a red blanket in the garden and tending her flowers. The people who remembered her, who wrote things down, they remembered her actually engaged in the process of gardening. And the garden and the various kinds of creatures that inhabit a garden appear over and over again in her poems and in her letters. So you can find a lot of evidence of her connection with nature. And if you think about it, a garden, it shows you that sort of continuance of life and death, that cycle in a very compressed way, in the same way that many of her poems do.
1: Right. Now, you mentioned in your book that she sent letters to friends containing flowers that she pressed from her garden. Could you maybe mention some of the flowers that she sent Uh, to
2: friends? Well, she sent over a thousand letters and probably way more. Those are the ones that were collected. And a few of them had flowers. We know that she sent pansies as pressed flowers because... There is a set of them that's still in the collection of the Boston Public Library. We know that she enclosed a rosebud because, again, that's still in the collection that's now at Harvard's Houghton Library. And so we know this is something she did. People also remarked on nosegays that she would leave them, maybe in a church pew before the service, or maybe she put them on top of a cake. She was also the family baker. And there's one reminiscence of another author at the time who came to visit her brother and had delivered to her during this luncheon a strange poem in this sort of basket of heart's ease, which is a little tiny pansy that I call Johnny Jumbo. She went to Amherst Academy. Amherst Amherst Academy was kind of over the next rise of land to Amherst College. It was a preparatory school. So think of it as middle school and high school. It was co-educational, which Amherst College was not. Amherst College was only for young men. But the Amherst Academy students, both boys and girls, were sometimes invited to lectures at Amherst College, particularly science lectures. They did study botany in school. It was considered an appropriate topic for young girls in particular. A hundred years before Emily Dickinson, young girls were being taught for example, botanical painting was considered an appropriate accomplishment. So there was that sort of connection between the young female and the flower. And so that kind of went on into the 19th century. Emily Dickinson lives from 1830 to 1886 when science becomes a more acceptable topic to teach young girls which it wouldn't have been a hundred years before that. Right.
1: And I also understand she had a conservatory.
2: Yes, small. That makes it sound very grand. You know, if you, if you go to a big botanic garden, they might have a big glass house for palms. This was a very tiny glass room that was added to the exterior of the house. It actually sort of hung outside of the dining room windows and a door was added from her father's study so that you could get in from the inside. And it's not very big. It might be about, I don't know, four or five feet wide and maybe, I don't know, let's say 15 feet long, if that. And so it was just a a room with glass on two sides where they could garden in the winter. So this time of year it being July when we're talking, the conservatory is basically cleared out. They might've left a few cacti or things like that, but mostly it was to bring in the flowering plants and the things that were tender. So for example, they grew oleander in pots. Oleander is a plant that is much more of a tropical plant. It lives outdoors in Florida, but certainly not in, you know, Western Massachusetts. That's just one example of a plant that would move in and out. She started seeds in the conservatory. She forced bulbs in the conservatory. She grew things like fuchsias, right? Same thing. You couldn't leave it outdoors.
1: And she learned her love of gardening from her mother, I understand.
2: Yes. Her parents were both interested in gardening. Again, they probably had the gender bias of the day where her mother was more interested in flowers her father was more interested in growing fruit and certainly the vegetables the dickinsons also had hired help as her father got more successful he was an attorney they had hired hands to help them in the garden and they also had household help and there are certainly scholars who think about and write about, well, what was the impact of those, those people in terms of giving Emily Dickinson the time to write and influencing her language? So, so many interesting things to explore.
1: Her niece, Maddie, described her garden as a meandering mass of blooms.
2: Yes, So again, think of it as just a riot of color. It was a flower garden. It was definitely an ornamental garden, but we know that it had lots of pollinators. It had lots of bird visitors because again, they appear in her poetry, but it was a mix. It was annuals and perennials. It was shrubs. And then her brother planted a lot of trees, which have since grown big, Catherine. So, you know, we have a lot more shade up at the Emily Dickinson Museum than was there in the Dickinson's day.
1: Right, so I understand at that time in the mid 1800s that Amherst was very popular for the soil, was very fertile, was not far from the floodplain of the Connecticut River. So it was very popular for farmers And also for gardeners like
2: Emily. Yes, and still is. So the Agricultural School of University of Massachusetts is in Amherst. The area is famous for its asparagus, or as they call it up there, grass, which is interesting. And there are still a lot of farms in the area. Right around the Emily Dickinson Museum, it's much more town now rather than farm. You have to go a little bit out of Amherst now to find the farmland. But I think of the Dickinson property at the time as a sort of gentleman's farm. So there would have been a a major orchard there. They grew many different kinds of fruit there was an extensive vegetable garden, there was a big barn and there was livestock. So there was also a steady source of fertilizer for the garden from the animal manure.
1: Right, so they were actively growing cherry trees, currants. I know you mentioned burdock and also uh, trellises of grapes. So they were, in a sense, you know, were growing
2: food to eat. Oh, absolutely. Yes, they had apples and pears and peaches, grapes, as you mentioned, and her mother was very proud of her figs. What I don't know, I can't tell you how they overwintered the figs. Some people in that part of the world at that time would bend and bury the branches. I'm fairly confident they did not bring them indoors that these would have been outdoor figs because they had big harvests and would bring them up to the local newspaper office and then the newspaper would write it up (laughs) that mrs dickinson has ripe figs
1: right she was very famous for her figs
2: she was indeed
1: so now Many Emily Dickinson enthusiasts may not realize that they actually moved from one house to another. Her grandfather went bankrupt and they had to go to another house.
2: So Yes, it wasn't very far away. It was basically, it's probably a quarter mile, you know, around the corner, if you will. Emily Dickinson was born in the house that her grandfather built called the homestead or the mansion. As you said, they they lost the house. Actually, when she was born there, her father was renting part of the house back from the new owners. When he had enough money together, he bought a house of his own on North Pleasant Street. And they lived there for 15 years and would have had a garden there as well. We don't know much about it because now it is underneath a gas station, little plug there, her historic preservation. But when Emily Dickinson was in her 20s, they moved back to the family homestead in the 1850s. And her father did a big remodel. He was quite successful at that point. And that's when she got the conservatory. It's also when she started to really produce a body of work. So that's where she wrote her poems. And if you go there, you know, a big attraction is to go see her bedroom where she wrote many of these poems. And now they have reproduced the beautiful rose trellised wallpaper that was in the room at the time.
1: Wow, that's great. So now we know that Emily Dickinson, she wrote thousands of poems, but she wasn't published very much during her lifetime. And then her sister Lavinia found... Her poems squirreled away in her bedroom after she died, correct?
2: Yes, that's absolutely true. Say around a dozen of her poems were published during her lifetime. It isn't clear whether she gave real permission for any of those She wrote once publication is the auction of the mind. So I don't think she really appreciated people tampering with her words. She did not see the beauty part about the editor. So they all knew she wrote poems. That wasn't a surprise. She shared them with friends. She sent them in letters. They knew she was writing. What they didn't know was the extent of it. It would be as if a member of your family occasionally gave you a poem to read. And then, you know, imagine after that person's death, they had instructed you, burn my papers. And, you know, if you're a Lavinia, you go back to the house after the burial, you open this cherry chest that was in the bedroom, of her sister and she finds about 40 books, handmade books that Emily Dickinson has put together and they're full of poems. There were probably 500 poems in those booklets, all neatly copied out. And then they found probably, well, I think the total count is around 1800 poems altogether. And her sister said, I had a Joan of Arc feeling about it. I, you know, I had to get them published. And so she worked and found people who would help her do that. Thank goodness she did that. (laughs) That's right. She burned all the letters Emily Dickinson received. So she might just as well have burned the poems too. And we never (laughs) would be having this conversation.
1: Right. So now I know we discussed before the interview that back in the mid 1800s, the terrain was filled with native trees and native plants. But Emily did like to collect non native flowers. Could we talk about some of those? I know some of them were bulbs and some of
2: them were wildflowers. There's a huge list of all of the, you know, sort of mentions by Emily Dickinson or the, the specific collections, as in the herbarium, where you have all of these amazing native and non-native plants that she collected it was a popular hobby in those days of i think young girls in particular I, I don't even know what to equate it to maybe some i don't know some game on a on a smartphone that every child of a certain age is playing Well, then it was, let's all make herbarium, or herbaria, I suppose, is the plural. You know, it's not something we would think of so much to do these days. The closest thing I can come to from my childhood is we would do leaf collections in the fall sometimes for school where you'd press leaves of different trees and put them in a booklet. So we know she encountered a lot of wildflowers, We also know that she was aware that all of this collecting, and they weren't digging them up, they were just picking them, that it was impacting the wildflowers. She once said in a letter, I'm not gonna have the exact quote, but the the, the girls are chasing all the wildflowers away. I mean, I can't find as many anymore because, you know, you imagine all these schoolgirls out there trying to find all of these, what we now know of as rare plants and picking them for their collections. So these days, that's definitely a no-no. If you go out to look for wildflowers, the thing you do now is you take a picture of them and you and you have a photographic collection <laughs> and you don't pick them. It's a different way of looking at things.
1: Now, you mentioned in the book that she loved peonies and mock orange, Virginia bluebells, pussy willows, cardinal flowers, campanula.
2: Yes, just it's almost, Catherine, like you name it, she loved it. So for example, the native witch hazel, this is the one that blooms in the fall. She called it the lovely alien, and she said it was like tinsel. And if you think about a witch hazel, if you don't know it, look up a a picture of native witch hazel, Hamamelis virginiana, and you'll see that it's blooms are like these curly threads and you'll go, yes, it looks exactly like tinsel. You know, what a wonderful word. So again, she had this way with words to describe these flowers that I love. But, you know, I would just say, oh, it's a yellow witch hazel with a sort of stringy flower. You know, it's like, that's why I'm not a poet. <laughs> <laughs> Now you have such wonderful
1: touches in the book. For example, you talk about her walking to school in the cold of winter, carrying a hot potato in her pocket to keep her hands warm.
2: <laughs> yeah, wasn't I've never great- tried that one. What a great idea, right? right? Right. I will say now you can buy these like hand warmers that you warm up in the in the microwave, but you can't eat them for lunch. <laughs> right. I <laughs> do think like the kids brought potatoes and they would put them on top of the stove in a cooler place when they got to the schoolroom. I just, I, I, I absolutely love that. That's genius. Yes. <laughs> now I know that you're the bird hugger. Podcast, Catherine. So I do want to emphasize that Emily Dickinson mentions birds very often in her poems. There are definitely a couple of favorites, and one is the robin. The robin appears over and over again, another is the hummingbird. So she's not without mention of birds for sure. Very nice. Now,
1: some other flowers that she seemed to like were hollyhocks, lily of the valley, honeysuckles, daffodils, sweet peas, nasturtiums, and sweet williams, which are very pretty.
2: They are. And many of them are very fragrant as well. She would often use terms like foreign terms. She'd kind of, I don't know, she'd say... I've but to cross the floor to stand in the spice aisles, right? That, that idea of fragrance. You know, she mentions buttercups and daisies. She particularly loved daylilies and once introduced herself with some daylilies. So I think that she often, you know, did see herself in the guise of a flower. Right. I do feel like she equated flowers, often with poetry and writing is like that. So you might come up with an interesting word or phrase. And if you don't capture it at the moment, it sort of flits away in the same way that If you pick a flower at the wrong time of day, or you don't get it into water quickly enough, it really fades quickly. And so again, I think like she often thought of the, you know, she didn't call it the writing process, but that creative cycle of coming up with the right word was a lot like the poems and blooms in her garden.
1: Right. And her poems do have that ephemeral quality because some of these plants you mentioned, the flowers you mentioned, some of them are only in bloom for two, three, maybe four or five days tops. Yes. And then that's it for a whole nother year. That's right. Or
2: they only bloom for a part of the day. So she liked to grow four o'clock, for example, which is a flower that comes from South America and four o'clock bloom at a certain time of day and then they close up. So, you know, you have to, you sort of have to be there to see them.
1: Right, and she was there observing everything,
2: right? That's right, because again, part of being a gardener is, is being there, you know, being there to see it.
1: Right, and so many of her poems have that ephemeral quality. She talks about how short life is, one moment you're here, and then next you're gone. Pass by like so many of the plants. It feels like you're just here for a few days and then you're gone. So she was very spiritual,
2: and- very spiritual, although not traditionally religious. So when she was older, she wasn't really a church goer, but then again, she was getting quite reclusive in general, but I agree. I think she was quite spiritual.
1: Now, would you be willing to read some of Emily Dickinson's
2: poems for us today? It would be my pleasure. So I'll start with one that's about her garden or maybe it's about her poem. So again, there's that balance and you all can decide for yourselves. My garden liked the beach denotes there be a sea that summer, such as these, the pearls she fetches, such as me. And then I think maybe we'll do something with a bird. This one's a little bit longer and it's about robins. The robin's my criterion for tune because I grow where robins do but were I cuckoo-born, I'd swear by him. The ode familiar rules the noon, the buttercup's my whim for bloom, because we're orchard sprung, but were I Britain-born, I'd daisies spurn. None but the nut October fit, because through dropping it, the seasons flit. I'm taught without the snow's tableau, winter were lie. To me, because I see New England Lee, the queen discerns like me provincially.
1: That is great. Marta, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Catherine. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to thank Marta McDowell for joining us today. Her book, Emily Dickinson's Gardening Life, is available on Amazon.com and the Barnes & Noble website. You can find out more about Marta and her gardening books by going to martamcdahl.com. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings.
0: Join Americans everywhere in the One Third for the Birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook.
1: And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.